Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England when I was three years old, and I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan and then as a journalist, editor, publisher and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here. Creators, performers, professionals and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call a hard agree. How much interaction did you have over the years with the with the DC War Library, with the war books? Well, I edited Unknown Soldier for a bunch of years and Weird War. I Those were the only two of the war books that I had real long connections with. Yeah. Uh, I was Joe Orlando's assistant when he inherited Sorry. When Archie Goodwin left DC in the 1970s, Carmine Infantino had a conversation with the editorial staff and said, guys, I can either hire somebody else or I can divvy the books up between you and give you, give you freelance fees on top of your staff salaries for the extra work that you're doing. And the guys signed up for it. So Joe inherited Star Spangled War Stories and took Unknown Soldier in a very different direction than what had been done previously. So I got to work on that as assistant editor. Can't say I made a major contribution to it. Oh, and I forgot Men of War. And then when I became an editor, I inherited- Oh, your Men of War was Gravedigger, right? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. When I inherited, I inherited Star Spangled War just as it changed into Unknown Soldier. That it, I inherited Weird War some similar point. And then I guess around 77, I got to launch Men of War and I helped develop Gravedigger with David Michelini. David, David's not always, always as comfortable developing plot ideas as he's writing. He's a wonderful writer. And I guess I was more of a history buff than he was. So I came, came up with the logic for the Gravedigger strip and handed that to him. Ah, that's so interesting because that's so important to that's so important to that book. The central logic of why he is who he is. Well, you know, the I, Jeanette was very anxious to diversify the DC line. We'd already introduced Black Lightning. That was the first DC title to have a man of color, person of color, yeah. as protagonist, and for whatever reason, the next the next idea up was to do something within the war line. Um, that was a challenge because at that point the conventional wisdom was that World War II was the only war we could sell. Vietnam, the emotional wounds from Vietnam were still too raw in America, um, and World War II was for America was a totally segregated war. So how do you how do you how do you do a an ongoing war comic about somebody who wouldn't be allowed to be in any kind of glorious role? How do you fudge that? 
and I'm not sure the fudges that we came up with were remotely historically legitimate any more than some of the other fantasies and comics over the years, about as realistic as Captain America. Yeah. Unrealistic in a whole different set of ways. Yeah. But it got out there, it did a did okay. And in an era where I think a lot of people who were reading the war books might have been draftees who included an awful lot of guys of color. Yeah. Um, hopefully it was something that had some emotional resonance for for them. And we did some fun strips in the backup, got to work with Jerry Grand and Eddie. Dateline oh, yeah. um, Frontline that Carrie Burkett created there, and then Rosa that Paul Kupperberg did worked with Chaken on Enemy Eight. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was great on that. I thought. I mean, how he's how he's how his worst days are better than most people's good days. Yeah, I I I, I, I couldn't agree more. With regard to you, you were talking about Unknown Soldier, and by the way, you you've answered a query I've always had because the great thing sometimes is with certain comic book creators. You know, you read their name and you only ever read their name. You don't hear it in conversation. And so you don't always know as a reader, as a fan, how to pronounce it. And uh, you just gave me one of those cues. One, and over the years, I've managed to either meet or, you know, accumulate the information about certain names, which are tricky, right? But you just gave me one I actually didn't know, which is David Michelini, right? I'm not sure it isn't the Brooklyn version of it, but <laughs> I'm fairly friendly with David in those years. Yeah. Yeah. David actually played a, a role in explaining my, me to myself, one of the mysteries of my life. Well, please continue. That's fascinating. One of the quirks of my body is that I'm sensitive to sunlight. And when I go out in strong sunlight without really good shades on, yeah. I sneeze a few times, yeah. sort of adapting to it. And I did not know that that was the phenomenon. But... David and I share that quirk in our physiology and he understood it and explained it when we were sneezing simultaneously on some occasion. And it was, Oh shit. That's why that happens to me. And, and, what, and what's the reason, Paul? I've never had it medically explained, but there's a, con a connection. It's like well, it's certain physiology, the yeah. sun will make you sneeze. And what it explained to me in part, was why I was out of school as many days as I was as a young kid, because my mother was enormously protective. Yeah. I'd been homesick with a cold. If I walked out the first day to go back to school, started sneezing, she would just yank me back in and no, 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 you're not well yet. I was out so much in second grade. My second grade teacher, who was a neighbor, was afraid that uh, I hadn't learned to read, which was quite a laugh. <laughs> particularly given how you ended up spending your career well and given the amount of reading i was already doing by the time i was in second grade my reading level was well beyond any anything they were tracking at that point uh, wow that, that what, what an interesting story and i'm going to use that moment to say welcome to hard agree i'm andrew sumner and i'm here with my special guest paul levitt famously the long-term president and publisher of DC Comics, the hugely recognizable author of brilliant runs on Legion of Superheroes and on Justice Society and well-known comics historian and all-around great bloke and font of comic book knowledge. We were talking a while back for my, for my day job at Forbidden Planet TV and we got into some interesting things in that 
that that conversation, which made me think that we could have a nice deep dive here about some of the bits and pieces that have been banging around my head for 20 years or so that I want to ask you about. And just to finish off on our, our little divergence about the DC war books, when you were you talking about your time on Unknown Soldier when it flipped from Star Spangled War to the Unknown Soldier title, were you on the book around that period of time when, when there was that experimentation with showing the soldier's injured face for a period of time? Do you remember yeah, this? Was, was, yeah. that, was that you? I'm not, I think that was Joe. I think the when Joe Orlando took over Star Spangled War, 75, I'm going to say, and he brought David Michelinie on to write it and Jerry Talaic on to draw it. But Joe's background was most deeply steep in either science fiction comics or horror comics. And I think he was very comfortable with the sort of horrific aspect of showing the, the soldier's face. I think that's that was really the the moment when it was first done. Interesting. And yeah, you know, I'm sure I'm sure it was, but it was a departure that didn't last for a long time. It seemed to go back into the anonymity of his face, seemed to re and the bandages and whatnot seemed yeah. to reassert itself after maybe maybe a year or so but there are some very distinctive covers which i think were probably the first issues of unknown soldier that i ever read actually personally were there's one that i can i can distinctly remember i think it's a cubic cover where uh, the soldier is kind of hiding in a in an alleyway somewhere and and or in a kind of nazi building and he's there in a kind of german uniform but with a face mask off so you see his kind of like horrifically injured face wasn't kidding about 40,000 comic books sitting out there. <laughs> this, is this is brilliant. Now, this is a first for me. Having, have, having a chat with someone who's then got the banned edition of the comic book that I'm referencing, that is brilliant. So here's, the, here's Joe's first issue, I think, of Star Spangled War. That's exactly the cover I'm talking about. That is 100% it. That is, mate, that is brilliant. I, I, I'm going to invite you to all my comics conversations now, Paul. That's which one again? Which one was that? 183. 183. That's exactly it. Wonderful. Did I start? I don't think I edited any of the Star Spangled. No, I, I start when he when they change over the title to be Unknown Soldier. Yeah. A few years after that. So that's 1974. Wow! Amazing, amazing, and it and it could be yesterday. I just so distinctly remember seeing that cover and it and 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 then I think I picked that up, but then I started reading Unknown Soldier regularly just as it flipped to being the title of the book. It was another favourite of Pops, my grandfather. And at that point it it gone back into more of the World War Two intrigue, bandage face, unknown identity, spy yeah. kind of approach. And it left me for years thinking, as as one did in that kind of pre-comics history internet era, like had I almost imagined that it that he revealed his face at a certain point. <laughs> I, and you know, of course, it's all well documented now. If you know, read any of the great tomorrow's magazines, and there's been at least two or three articles about it over the years. And but it was one of those things. It was very much in my mind for a long time. So yeah, very interesting. Sam Moskowitz, who was the great historian of science fiction at one point, had the line that the golden age of science fiction is twelve. And you know, I'm not sure twelve is exactly the magic number, but I think there's an age at which we imprint. Yeah. And whether it's comics or the television shows that we love, 
there's a magic to that stuff. Yes. And it may not recreate when we sit there and watch it again. No, that's I have so true. Incredibly fond memories of my favorite Martian with yeah, Ray right and Bill Bixby. And when I sat down, down and finally found some of it on, I don't know, YouTube or where, wherever it was, it was sort of, and I love that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the 29 cent special effect of his end antenna yeah, coming, coming yeah. up. They're both very good actors, of course. So maybe that's an excuse, but there's something magic about remembering that comic, remembering where you bought it, bringing yourself back to that moment in your life. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's a hugely resonant thing. And I think it's one of the things that fuels conversations like this, podcasts like this, with, with people talking about, about that, that emotion. It's a hugely powerful thing. And I, I too have had that experience countless times where, you know, I've got this real love for certain American TV shows that I just absolutely loved on the cusp of my teens. And, and the fascinating thing is most of them don't hold up apart from the title sequence. The title sequence is glorious, right? <laughs> because that's your distilled emotion right there. And then you watch the actual episode and it's like, oh man, nothing happens and nothing <laughs> happens every week. And it's the same story all the time, right? With, with exceptions, which I think the exceptions are truly fascinating. Uh, and uh, for me too, the exceptions might be so out of, say, four shows I truly loved, Star Trek, The Man From U.N.C.L.E., Mission Impossible, and The Rockford Files, I think you can still pretty much watch The Rockford Files and Star Trek and enjoy it, yeah? I think it's very difficult to watch The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and, and uh, Mission Impossible because they're essentially the same all the time. Yeah, uh, and they probably haven't travelled out of that era quite as well. That shows I fell in love with. I mean, I was... I was well, a, everybody has their different thing, right? What yeah, were your What were yours, Paul? I was a get smart kid. Ah, yeah, okay, yeah, brilliant. The yeah. the wise ass humor in that, yeah, just was wonderful for me. And I was a, I guess Bar Barbara Feldon may have been one of my first crushes. Yes, yeah. Well, you're crush. a man of good taste, quite rightly so. You know, so that's sort of the first first TV show that I I remember being important to me. I remember buying all the little mass market paperback adaptations of it yeah. school book fairs i've not 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 tried to find those and read those again because i'm you know, pretty sure i'd be disappointed yeah but the, the hint of mel brooks and buck henry that was in that yeah uh when i look back sort of like oh okay those those guys work on it <laughs> that's okay what was what was your first experience like that in the comic book space what what comic books did you first truly love I mean, the first uh, the first stuff that I fell into was Mort Weisinger's Superman line. Yeah, the I'm of the right age that Jerry Siegel was back writing some of it. Ed Hamilton was occasionally doing something. A lot of a lot of very solid writers building a very complicated mythology at that point. Who, who were we talking about on art at that point? Would that have been sort of, were you into Wayne Boring? Was it after that or no? It's sort of at that point. Boring's doing a little bit of it. Mostly, I think he was on the newspaper strip at that point, but he'll have an occasional story. A lot of Al Plastino. Yeah. Is there, is there fourth guy? That's Kurt Schaffenberger on a rare occasion, mostly doing the Lois Lane stuff. Yeah. I loved his art, by the way, Kurt Schaffenberger. I thought he was uh, wonderful. Be beautiful line. Uh, John Fort doing the Legion of Superheroes, which was 
the stuff I love the most, George Papp doing Superboy. Yeah. Uh, interesting, interesting stable of solid, solid artists on it. And then the Legion became really my first, my first thing that I would collect that I would seek passionately. And that's the, that's throughout all of that early adventure comics era. Yeah. Which you, which you ended up you ended up being the editor on Adventure Comics, right? I I got to edit Adventure Comics at one point, and of course got to write the Legion. And then yeah. probably when that t- became available, when when Jim went over to Marvel in the mid seventies, I <coughs> probably would have killed anyone in the hall who tried to talk Jenny into getting the assignment. And how did that moment feel, having fallen in love with the Legion when you did, having that be one of your core experiences, to then be able to? become so closely identified with it. What was that journey like? You know, it's one of the great pleasures of my life, but I've been insanely lucky professionally. I'm a kid who loved this stuff and got got to grow up and do in many ways more with it than almost anyone gets to. But I got to do it so young, I didn't have any real perspective on how ridiculously lucky I was. And I, you mentioned that you're a Ditko fan. You know, I think I was 18, maybe, when I got to create Stalker. Yeah, wow. Amazing. Steve Ditko and Wally Wood drawing it. Oh, which is such a beautiful combination. Ditko and Wood together, I think. I just wish they created more comics together because they're so suited. What's fascinating about them? And I don't wish to talk across your anecdote because I'm anxious to hear it. You just made me excited about the the letter that I have. Many people have got many letters from Ditko, but the one I have is about, which actually it hangs up in my hallway, is about him talking about his creative partnership with Wally Wood Ah. on Stalker. And because a a comic I always loved was that very short-lived Atlas title, The Destructor. And I think the first issue of that, which is the two of them, and it's Archie Goodwin, on the script, just a beautiful, like sub you know, post Spider-Man origin issue, and uh, I think it's just I've loved it for years. And for years, I didn't have issues two, three, four. I did ultimately, but it was exactly one of those artifacts you were talking about earlier. That it was this sacred one comic book uh-huh. that I just absolutely loved. But I loved that that combination on Stalker. I thought was fantastic. So for yeah. you to work with the two of them on that must have been wonderful. I mean, they're so compatible. I mean, yeah, yeah. Both fabulous storytellers, but Steve is a more dynamic superhero storyteller. And Woody just had, you walk into a Wally Wood It's It's a complete finished set scene. Steve is, Steve is at his heart a great cartoonist. And Woody at his heart is a great illustrator. He understood cartooning and articulated as well as any artist of his generation. But he has that illustrator gene to make a world real in a unique and powerful fashion. So, but I didn't think anything of it. I mean, I'm <laughs> excited, it was beautiful stuff. I'm getting to, I'm getting to create, create something, but the outrageousness of it didn't sink in. You know, looking back, my career involved DC breaking quite a number of labor laws in how young I was hired and the, the ways we were employed in those days. Um, my elevation to the business side of the company was mostly a function of the parent company not giving a damn about DC. So 
was kind of, well, I guess somebody has to do it. If you want to put a 24-year-old kid in that position of responsibility, Jeanette, fine. Doesn't <laughs> someone, ha- someone has to sweep the floors. But as it's happening, you realize you're lucky on some level, but it's very hard to step, step away from it and realize how ridiculous it is that it's happening. In retrospect, it's like, okay, I'd never let any of those things happen. <laughs> oh, it, it, it is it is fascinating to stick with, with Ditko for a while because you then went on to to co-create the Prince Gavin version of, of Starman, mm-hmm. which was which was in, in Adventure Comics. And as I recall it, that was when Adventure Comics was like two lead features, one of which was Starman. And that, and Plastic Man was usually and Plastic Man, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, brilliant. And it was was that iteration of Starman was that was that your creation that you took Steve to illustrate? How did that work? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Len Wein was editing Adventure, and he just picked up the book. He wanted to do it as a two feature book, and offered me the shot to to do something. And we worked out the Starman idea. It was good. It was a good name. DC wasn't using at that yeah. point the original character felt old yeah. by that point. I didn't update it nearly as well as James Robinson later would. Well, I'd like to get onto that in a second because I think there's a beautiful outcome for your character with the James Robinson run, but to, to stick with your your, your creation of, of Prince Gavin, because it was it was Dick County, if I remember correctly, the inks were Romeo Tangal, is that right? Yeah, Romeo yeah. those issues. And, and uh, we did about eight issues, nine issues, something like that. Yeah. And it didn't quite wrap up the story. So I got the opportunity fairly shortly thereafter. I was occasionally writing a DC Presents for yeah. Julie to wrap up the story there. And you got yeah. Jim Starlin to do that, right? Yeah. yeah. That was a ama- yeah. That was great. I, as you can see, I'm a big fan of that strip. I, I really, it's, 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 my, it's probably for me personally, it's my favorite thing of yours that, 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 that you've written. That's my favorite. You know, that's my favorite creation of yours. I always loved it. And, I guess you were the right age. I mean, yeah. I think I think it was fine. I mean, I think it was it was a distinctive story. It wasn't it wasn't the kind of material DC or Marvel were doing a lot of at that point. Something that's a little kind of on the nose, unsubtle that I would like to think I wouldn't do today. But but we had fun with it. Steve seemed to enjoy it. You know, I I'm really happy looking back. Steve didn't work with a lot of writers happily. Yeah. You know, he was happiest writing his own material. And the couple of couple of experiences we had, I guess about 20 stories all in. He enjoyed he enjoyed working with me. And as a result, you know, we did I think it's the only <clears throat> it's the only one of his independent works that actually he worked with a writer. And didn't do himself the one job we did for Imagine, yeah, like Friedrich's Star Reader. And how how did you find Ditko personally? You know, I liked Steve. He was, uh, you know, he doesn't he doesn't his preference was not to talk about himself yeah. to his readers. So I've tried to honor that. And <clears throat> he always said he wanted his work to speak for itself. So I honored that. Yeah. Uh, he was a private man during his life. He's entitled to keep that privacy. Yeah, 
That that makes a lot of sense. And something you touched upon was one of my favourite DC books ever, actually, is James Robinson's Starman, which I think is far and away, I think James Robinson's a great writer, but I think that's far and away the best thing he's ever done, personally. And Of the stuff I've read, I'm, I, may not, I may not have run across something else he did that was wonderful, but I, that's a, it's a beautiful run. Oh, it's, it's an incredible right and I think it works beautifully on two levels I think number one I think for me it's probably the the really the first and the greatest superhero dynasty book there the, I mean you could argue I guess that this dynasty was a factor of say the flash books but I think what what he very deliberately did with Starman where I, I felt as I was reading that he was operating in an area that I'd not seen before is that he kept all these multiple iterations of the character kind of alive and coexisting and intermingled. And I yeah. think the way he resolved your Starman with the with the the, the, the other eighties Starman was, was was kind of was kind of brilliantly done. I thought it was a it was a beautiful denouement the way he wrapped it all together. In the same way I guess that Gaiman did in the early issues of Sandman with all the different incarnations of Sandman but in a very different way i thought he did a very beautiful job with that and i got the sense when i was reading it but i'd be interested to know what you thought that that was probably an outcome for your prince gavin starman that you were happy with you know i just i've always had the attitude about my work in in comics that when you go to write characters (coughs) excuse me set in a pre-existing universe you're building on the work of other people. I didn't ask Bob Kane about the Huntress. I knew Bill Finger, but he was dead already by that point. Yeah, I, yeah. I couldn't ask Bill. So why should I expect the next guy to ask me or gal? You know, it's a the the mainstream superhero work is in many ways a relay race. And you get handed the baton, and it's your lap, and make it as glorious as you can, go as fast as you can, or whatever makes it wonderful. And then you're handing the baton to somebody else. And often you don't get to pick who the next person holding it is, and you don't have any control over it, and you probably shouldn't have any control over it. And sometimes you really love it. And sometimes you do your best not to read it because you know it looks like a traffic accident. I was a great fan of James's work. I agree with you about the comparison to Neil. The difference, I think, obviously Sandman's one of the great, great works in comics, but Sandman is not fundamentally superhero mythology. Yeah. It, it borrowed beautifully from the mystery books mythology from a couple of prior Sandmans in some fashion or other, the connection to what Karen would ultimately do a Sandman mystery theater. But what James was doing was a modern superhero book for its time. And he was taking all of these elements from very, very different periods of what a superhero book could be and connecting them into this modern modern take on the mythos, which is a very different very different kind of challenge. Not better or worse, just you know, two two cooks in different kinds of restaurants. 
Yeah, it, it, I think it's I think it's very interesting. I think it's fascinating that he kind of created a book essentially with a beginning, a middle, and an end. That so far, I mean, this might not always be the case, but so far is, has pretty much been left alone by other people. And if they've done stuff with Starman, they've it's been another Starman or another. But the Jack Knight Starman doesn't seem to have been played around with too much by anybody else. Well, I mean, one of the things that I believed in greatly as a publisher was that there, there were certain things that were so well done that you shouldn't let the baton get passed to the next person. And I always felt that way about Archie and Walt's Manhunter. And, oh, yeah, for sure. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, certainly, Neil on Sandman had been one of those critical cases. That was the first time we ever agreed as a company not to continue publishing a successful title after the writer was leaving. Yeah. And Alan and Dave's work on Watchmen, which is well known that, that I didn't, didn't want us doing any sequel work for that. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which I think was absolutely the right call. And I'm sure that's exactly what David Dave, who's here on this call too. So, so yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right about that. You, 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 you touched upon something then that, uh, that, that, that gave me some thoughts, but classically, and now that I'm thinking about it, I got, there was something you said, I thought, man, yes, I've got to ask you about that. And, and it, it's disappeared for the time being. So I'll come back to that when I think of it. Something that I, I wanted to ask you about was your relationship with another one of my great comics heroes, Will Eisner. And, and you, of course, I, I, I imagine you were heavily involved with the move to bring him into DC towards the end of his career to become his publisher with those beautiful editions you did. But one of my favorite comics projects ever, which I proudly own every edition of, is the is the Spirit Archives. What you did, which I understand, maybe I've maybe I've, maybe I've misheard this story, but I understand that Will wasn't initially keen to do is the fact that you republished all of it, including the the non Eisner years when he was in the military, which I, I I feel as a fan was a very important thing to do, yeah. In terms of you you have the light and shadow of his that incredible incandescent sort of post war work that he did between like forty five and fifty fifty one. But I think it's very interesting seeing that in the context of what happened while he was away. So I was really appreciated the fact that's what you did. Well, I mean, I remember very vividly, Bob Wayne and I were in Baltimore visiting Diamond for whatever reason. And we did a lot of business, obviously, back and forth. Of course, yeah. And we were at dinner and we had just gotten the news, I guess, of kitchen, kitchen sink folding. Yeah. And it was, maybe we've got a shot at the spirit. Maybe we've got a shot at Will. And debating over dinner with Bob, whether, whether it would be better for it to be in our archive series or I think it was even, there was somebody else doing something good in reprinting. You know, would it be better for us to do it in archives or would it be better for somebody else to do it this other way? I don't know what the other way turned it. And I had the great fun that the timing worked out to, to sign the contract with Will at a panel with Will at San Diego. Brilliant. Probably in the next year sometime. You know, I knew Will from my fanzine days. I had met him, I guess, when I was 15 or 16 years old. He was at a studio in Manhattan doing the Army stuff mostly, before Contract with God. I had collected the spirit sections for a while as a kid. I had gotten about, about half the way. I'm very, as you can tell from 
40,000 comics. I'm very much a completionist. If I yes, can't have yeah. the whole thing, I don't want any of it. <laughs> so I ultimately ended up selling off the half of the spirit sections that I had because it just, it wasn't, it wasn't going to be possible to fill in the gaps. Yeah. It was too complicated. So it was one of the things that had frustrated me in my collecting. So it was, for that reason alone, it was a great pleasure to be able to put it all together. It's a complex history. You know, there's, there's Ebony to deal with. Yeah, of course. Will was young. He had grown up in a very inwardly focused society. And I, I have perhaps a, not unique, but an, un, an unusually direct perspective on Will in that my family was immigrant Jews. Yeah. All, all of my grandparents, my, even my mother, were Jews from what was called the Pale of Settlement, depending on the day it was Lithuania or Russia or Poland, depending on whose tanks were in which direction. Some of the same crap we're seeing again today, I guess. Yeah. So I was fairly connected to the world that Will chronicled and that Will himself grew up in. And I believe that Will grew up in a world where while he was being prejudiced, he wouldn't have fully realized he was being prejudiced because that was the exposure he was getting to people of both in the culture and how art was taught in those days, because art was certainly taught with the power of caricature and racial caricature as a normative behavior. It would have been great if he was more enlightened and had somehow gotten the idea, but he probably didn't know a person of color on any sort of decent level. Yeah. He did that, he was very young. And then he goes off to war meets people who aren't Jews. If you were an immigrant Jew in the 1930s and the 1940s, you had very limited exposure to other kinds of people. He went to deal with Clinton, which was a very large high school. I don't remember the ethnic mix of it, but it was very heavily Jewish in those years. And it was certainly very heavily white. Is, is that the same high school that Stan Lee went to? Stan and Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Yeah, wow. Okay. It was the largest high school in New York in those years, and of course, you're in a period when high schools are very new in, in New York. We just that generation is pretty much the first generation where high school is compulsory in, in our part of it. He comes back and he starts cleaning up his act a little bit. He's never great about it, but at least Ebony loses a, a bunch of the minstrel characteristics. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it's an important body of work because it's really representative of that process of mastering the comic book page. Before Will's work, and specifically his work on the spirit, comic book artists were following the logic of the newspaper comic strip exclusively. And while there'd been some brilliant experimentation like Windsor McKay certainly, Generally speaking, it was the solidity of the panels and the solidity of the camera placement. You look at, you look at Foster's stuff, magnificent as it is, yeah. it's a frozen camera. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. 
Eisner's fascination with the German expressionist films, with film in general, starts creating this translation in the material that is a powerful influence. Kurtzman is, is too young. He has, Harvey doesn't show up for another decade, basically. Jack Kirby, Jack is creating the language of physical dynamic of fighting, but he's not, he's not brilliant yet about his camera. He frankly would, in my view, would never be Will's equal in terms of complex storytelling with the camera. Jack just was the most fertile imagination we ever had in comics. Yeah. And the best depictor of power and impact. Yeah, very propulsive, right, what he does. Jack, Jack and Erwin Hazen are the first two artists, I think, who understood what fighting was. Maybe from their own background on the yeah. Jack case, the Lower East Side. And, in Irwin's case, his early work on some of the sports cartooning. Maybe Joe Simon contributed to that knowledge. Joe had been a sports cartoonist as well for a minute in his career. But Jack really embodies that. But Will figures out the comic book page, what you can do with the page, how, how you can do a cutaway, how you can do a triptych, all the tricks that you look at now and it's sort of like, oh yeah, I guess I've seen that 4,000 times. Right, but in 1942, you hadn't seen it any times. Yeah. And that he contributed so much in that period that was so important. I, I think that's so interesting. I mean, I certainly think it's the way the comics play out, temporarily speaking, that he was just such a master of time on the page and manipulating time. And also I think his 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 post-war spirit is the uh, the first time I, I really got a sense of artist and letterer working in harmony those beautiful abe canningson letters that you get in this in the post-war spirit just just it really really enhances what what will was doing i think i walt kelly may have been doing it before will with the lettering he certainly he was certainly the first guy who really understood font in a powerful way in comics i'm not a great Maven on Kelly's work, I'd have to defer to probably Maggie Thompson would, would know better than I would for the, the right examples of that. But in the heroic dynamic, Will certainly is the first one who makes all of that work. And the, the platform, the, the pulpit that Will had to work with there, with the spirit because of the newspaper distribution of it, the funding that was available to him because of that. It's just, it's an, it's an awesome period. And to produce that quality of work in a studio with that frequency, one of the great fun afternoons of my entire life when I was working on the, the book on Will was going out to spend the afternoon with Jules Pfeiffer, getting to know him and discovering that we knew many of the same people in comics and had worked with them. He at the very beginning of their career and me at the very end. Yeah. And, you know, his talking about Jerry Grandinetti as the young architecture student who was great at doing backgrounds. And my talking about Jerry, who was a great master of many of the things that Will had 
had brought into it the fluidity of Jerry's work in his in his later years. Yeah, that what a wonderful what a wonderful you know turn of events and how how lovely to be able to share those different perspectives. I think that's you know a great a, no doubt a great moment to have had, and I think there's no doubt that what you and and Bob, who's a, as you know, is a very good, Bob Wayne's a very good friend of mine, as he is yours. The fact that you you all got to work together in on that later era of of Will's publishing and kind of you, I mean, you were his publisher when Will passed away, weren't you? He passed away in the in the middle of the the archives coming out of Oracle. Yeah, I think we, we were still doing some of the archives at that at that point. I oh, mean, had I, he flipped to W.W. Norton for doing some of the collections? He, yeah. he had gone over to Norton for the, the original graphic novels by that time. Yeah. And he came, he came to us. We'd been publishing his graphic novels, whatever, for a bunch of years, post-Dennis. And he was doing the deal with Norton for... It's the plot, I guess. It was, that no, was, before the it was earlier than that. Before yeah. That the uh, the, Dick, the Dickens book. The, oh, Fagin the Jew. Fagin the Jew. He'd done it. He'd done his deal with Norton, and he really wanted to bring his backlist over to Norton. He felt he felt it would have a better chance there. He and Will, his whole life, had wanted to be with a real publisher. Yeah, he'd been working on that consistently. And I remember sitting there, and we were talking about what what Norton could do and what we could do. And I said, you know, we're learning, Will. We're we're getting better at that. Now, I agree. Norton's better at publicity than we are. They're better at working with bookstores than we are. We're learning. We said, I don't have that much time. I can't afford to wait. He didn't know how how close he was to the end, but I mean, he knew he was in his knew he was in his mid eighties at that point. Late yeah. uh, and we worked out a very unusual deal to have him buy back his backlist titles. They weren't great home runs for DC. They were more a matter of pride than anything else. Yes, yeah. So he was able to bring them over, over to Norton. That's very interesting. Um, it must have been, it must have been a privilege to get to, to, to work with him, have an impactful relationship on that, those later stages of his, of his creative life. Oh, it was a pleasure. I mean, you know, Will was, Will was a brilliant guy. And it just to get to get to be truly a friend for to him and to Anne was was a delight. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Speaking of, of great artists, what can you share with me about your your relationship or your impression of working with Joe Cubert? Um, you know, Joe Joe is this wonderfully warm human being. Was one of the innate talents of life I mean, to be a top artist in the field at 14 or 15. It's, I mean, again, unlikely to ever happen again, but unlikely to ever ha have happened in the first place. He was so, so happy with the teaching, with building the school. He was so conscious of the luck he had had in life. When he passed, Two stories, two, two, two related stories. When Muriel passed, his wife, who had been basically his business manager for a bunch of years, so I had gotten to know her. I, you know, I knew a few of the wives of the older guys really well. They managed the flow of work 
or the business of their husbands. When Muriel passed very suddenly and very sad, and I had written Joe a note based on a an old Jewish saying, word in Hebrew, Dayenu, which means enough. And there's a, whether it's a song or a prayer, saying that if this person had done that, that would have been enough. But they did this, and that would have been enough. It goes on. And I did a little thing based on Dayenu, talking about Muriel's contributions to his life, I guess. It's about a week after the funeral. This has been totally disruptive to Joe's life because not only is his wife and partner of all these years has passed, but it's his partner in running the school. She ran the administrative <laughs> side of his, of his business. He's got five kids who are in, in mourning in different fashions, a bunch of grandchildren who are affected by all of this, the students. It's a week later and a Sergeant Rock cover shows up on my desk framed, signed by Joe with a thank you note for what I've done. What the fuck? Um, when he passed, the school's in a little town called Dover, New Jersey. It's not that little a town, but it's a New York suburb. The funeral procession shut down the town. It was maybe half a mile long, maybe a mile long, winding its winding its way through the town. Just generations of the students, Rick Veach, Steve Bissett, Mandrake, and Dursima. Those are the ones I knew. Many of them, of course, I didn't know. People who'd worked with Joe all the years. Just a horde of us, all in this procession as it as it as it's winding through. Uh, very, very, ta very talented, very strong guy. Yeah, yeah, no, and such a such a great sort of legacy at, at, at DC. Every, every every cover, every piece of artwork, such a beautiful piece of work. One of those uh, early, early comics appreciating life memories that I've got. And I didn't fully understand the what all of it was about until I was a bit older, was that, that great issue of, I think it's the Cubit issue of DC Special, if I remember correctly, where oh, yeah. he's got the autobiographical strip at the beginning. Yeah. And there's that, there's that tremendous moment where he's referencing Russ Heath parting it up at the Playboy Mansion, which is a reference I didn't get for years until I, I heard the story about Russ Heath's time at the Playboy Mansion. Well, and but you, but I remember you see that sort of, you see that breakdown of all his kids, a number of whom are very fake. That's the one, right? So, so for those of you listening to this, as ever, Paul has got this to hand and has just got hold of his bound bound version of it. I must say, mate, your band editions—the colours on them—are incredibly vibrant. Yeah, they they just look so lovely. Well, I mean, it depends on which ones. Yeah, I mean, these are the DC specials are things I bought off the stand as a kid. Yeah, so they were well taken care of for a long time. The things that I filled in, where it was from before my time, 
I never was a great grading or quality or mint yeah. collector. So I want to read the stories. Yeah, so there's large runs of things that are a little more beat up. Yeah. And then of course, all the stuff that came out once I was in the industry went straight into being bound very, very early on. It's a, it, it's an odd fetish doing the bound volumes. My older son, who is the most serious, well, I don't know if he's the most serious in my children, but he and my daughter are the two serious souls. Yeah. My older boy was born old. Yeah. And I'd get the fresh bound volumes back from the binder every year. I keep my collection in a highly organized fashion, as you can tell from how quickly I can find these things. So every year when they come back, I'd have to move every bound volume to interfile the new ones. And Philip was about 10. I guess he decided it would be a nice daddy and son thing to help daddy with moving the binding. Yeah. So he helps me for a little bit of time. And then he's looking around the room. I had this beautiful library in the house I was living in those years. I built the house and stolen the attic space over my study so I could have 12 foot high, 350 foot cases. Great. One of those old rolling ladder routines. Yeah. So he looks around and says, Dad, how much did you spend binding your comics? And I said, well, Philip, you, you've taken estimating in school. You can figure that out. So he goes to the drawer and pulls out the little pocket calculator. Starts going around the room, punch, punching things in, figuring it out. I said, what does it cost to do one of these? I said, oh, I don't know, about 20 bucks a book, I think, at the time. Dad, you spent $25,000? Fine. <laughs> Boy, you're a schmuck. <laughs> you know, it's going to pay for you. It's going to pay for your college, kid. <laughs> no, kid. <laughs> you ate yesterday, right? But that's that was the future lawyer in him. Yeah, of course. Of course. And, you know, how wonderful that, uh, you know, your, your kids of all, you know, represent these different facets of who you are as a person have made them their own. And, you know, that must, I, I know being a parent myself that, you know, the, uh, the success of one's children is, is far more important actually than the success of your own career. It's fabulous. You know, it's wonderful that your children grow up to be unique, good people. And look, it's, it's a joy if your kids are good bookkeepers, you know, whatever the, whatever the simplest profession you, you want it to, good, good retail shop workers, as long as they're good people. But I have the phenomenal success. I have three kids. My daughter is an executive at Planned Parenthood. She runs their chat and text rooms for the, for the U.S., she touches 200,000 people a year. That's tremendous. Need yeah, of advice or help with the program she's devised. You know, she's the same kid who would lean out, lean out of her carriage at one year old and feed pizza crust to a homeless person. Yeah. And she's been working, working her whole life to, to do good stuff. My older boy, it, who was the serious academic monster in the team, is a, a lawyer. He works for the New York State, what's, what we call the Solicitor General, which is the part of the government legal office that does more complex legal matters, not, not trial work, but appellate work. And 
he's most recently been the lawyer signing the the brief for I think it's 45 states suing face suing Facebook and he's had to lead lead this team procedure across this multi-state environment and then my youngest who's the only one who actually liked what I did for a living the other two I will do again a plug is the co-producer on the movie Dog, which is coming out in a minute or two. Channing Tatum movie Dog, yeah, which looks like a lot of fun. He's had he's had a ball working on these things. Yeah, quite. It's, quite. it's fabulous to have kids who succeed at becoming who they want to be. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and 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 I'm very pleased for you. That I think supremely important. I'm very pleased for you that you're in that in that situ- that you're in that glorious situation, actually, mate. As as we as we rock into the, the you know the final leg of our conversation, there's a couple of things I'm mindful of. I, I wanted to ask you about, and to, we were talking about some of my favourite comics that you've scripted earlier on. But another one which we didn't touch upon, something that I truly loved when it came out, it's a relatively short run, was uh, your revived all star comics in the seventies. Yeah, and well, now that I think about it, Wallywood worked on that with you as well, didn't he? Yeah, actually, yeah. that was. That was Woody's last mainstream superhero work. Amazing, yeah, and it, it's it's beautiful work. I've I, I, that's one of those comics for me that I've got a lot of emotional attachment to. But I and again, I haven't read them for quite a while, so this is all from the the indelible memories I have of it. But but I, I, yeah, so so I, I you you are obviously going to know the answer to this inside out, but. I had the sense that one of the first, one of the things that you did, the the bringing the Star Spangled Kid into everything, that was that was seemed to me at the time that outside of the JLA JSA team ups and the Seven Soldiers of Victory team up in the early seventies, that was one of the first times that you know the the roster of heroes in the JSA had become mixed up a little bit. What was the, what was is that was that well, character you'd always loved? That's not my fault. That's Jerry Conway when he brought out all star comics. Ah, Jerry, right, okay. Jerry, when given the opportunity to revive the JSA, didn't want to do a book that was all about old people. Yeah, got it. And he came up with this conceit that the story essence of the series would be the generational difference. So he brought in the Star Spangled Kid and he came up with Power Girl yeah. as yeah. Uh, an alternative, an alternative version of Supergirl, essentially. And he brought in Robin as the, not that young, but the, the successor generation. And I, Jerry, unfortunately, for his pleasure in getting to play with the toys, had to leave after a few issues when he got offered the opportunity to be the editor-in-chief at Marvel. Yeah. Sadly, that didn't work out. He was yeah, editor-in-chief right. for three weeks and then went, shifted to be a writer-editor for it and had a good run there, did some interesting stuff. And then, of course, has had that amazing TV run as well. You know, he had that after his, oh, yeah. post, his post-comics run was incredible, right, on the Law & Order shows and whatnot. I mean, Jerry's an enormously smart, good, talented guy. We were good friends. I was his assistant editor for a bunch of years when he was at DC. One thing I found fascinating about him in one of our later conversations in more recent years, when we're talking about the TV work and the comics work, he said, you know, as a writer, I... I think I write better in other people's voices. And he really looked at his body of work and felt that in television, he was successful because on things like the Dick Wolf stuff, yeah. there, was, there was a voice there that he could slide into and he could execute in it well. 
and in the Marvel work, the Spider-Man work, it was Stan's voice. Yeah. yeah. That. He didn't feel, I think, as proud of his DC work because there wasn't a specific voice and he had to, he had to try to find one and create one and maybe wasn't there long enough to perfect it and develop it. And also the economics of the time, this is before the era of royalties, he had to do a hell of a lot of pages to make a decent living at the rates we were paying. Yeah, and got it. That was, that was dilutive of the, the possibility of really doing great quality work. That I think it's very it's very interesting what you're touching upon. I've just remembered, of course, Jay, All Star was a Conway's Corner book, wasn't it? That's yeah. the that that was that 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 era. Yeah, it's very. I, I learned a lot from Jerry as his assistant, and when he left, they were divvying the books up. They needed people to cover them, and again, the Justice Society was something I had loved. The first comic I remember buying on a newsstand was that first JLA JSA team up. So it was me me. <laughs> I think, please, I love those guys. I know this, the history of it. And I got, I got to do most of that run. Yeah, that was, it was, it was, it was glorious stuff, mate, and uh, and lives on incandescently in my in my subconscious. I too could root up my comics, but have a, I'd have a more Byzantine route. I'd have to travel up to the north of England and leap into my mum and dad's loft. But they're, they're they're there, you know. I can feel them calling to me. 300 miles away. Figure out a way to get them out of the loft and get them onto the shelves, Andy. Yeah, I mean, I, lo I, I, I love what I must admit, I, I'm supremely impressed with the speed with which you can bring the issues we've been talking about to hand. That is amazing. The fact that you're right there with them, that's great. It's good to be with your toys. Yeah, for sure. And I, I've I've used the, 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 that racking system you've got. Back when I, in my magazine publishing area, back when yeah. we were on, 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 on cut, we had a whole had a whole library of uh, rock and roll and rock music clippings, you know, from that seventy years of British oh. journalism. That's how we used to access all the all the archival material. So you know, to have that for your own personal comic collection, I think is is just wonderful. It's probably not the most um, likely to pay off home improvement. <laughs> That's so true, yeah. but it makes me happy. Yeah, I can I can see that, brother. I really can. Now, be, be, and before we go, just to wrap up on a couple of couple of quick questions. In in the whole period over your years working at DC, what do you feel has perhaps been the most underrated project that you were associated with that you didn't feel cut through as as well as it could have done relative to its actual quality? Maybe the milestone books. Yeah, they were great. They're good. You know, I think you never know why something doesn't work. Yeah. When I look back on it, the only creative decision that I can argue with in retrospect was the coloring decision. And it, I understand absolutely why they made it. With the technology of the time, it wasn't possible with the the then conventional coloring systems to do really a variety of skin shades. Yeah. So they came up with this co reasonably cost-effective system that would let them reflect the diversity of the characters in the books. Yeah. But I think I think that was a negative in the process. I don't know how much bias played as a challenge to the book succeeding. 
in the marketplace, but I know that they were as well-written and well-drawn as anything that we ever published. And the level of courage that the team had that was creating them, the sweat equity that those guys put into doing it was beyond imagination. I have enormous respect for, for what they pulled off there. And I'm sorry it didn't do better at the time, but I'm, you know, I'm thrilled that it lives on in people's minds and DC is trying to do all sorts of things right now to bring them back to the public view. Yeah, it really does. I, th I think that's very well said. And, uh, and it, I think it was a very important piece of work. Who, uh, w when you look back on all your years working in comics, who would you say, have, could, would, would you be able to say, I have one particular favorite, favorite artist? Is there, is, there, or is, there, or is there a handful of people you say were up there for you? You know, it's the child in me, it's Kurt Swan. Yeah. Because that's where I was that day. But the writer in me got to work with so many amazing people. You know, the work I was able to do with Keith, the work Giffen, the work I was able yeah. to do with Joe Staten. In more recent years, the fun I had with Sonny Lou on Dr. Fate. I've been so privileged in all of that. To get to have something you worked on drawn by Steve Ditko's, drawn by Jack Kirby, drawn by Carmine Infantino. It's outrageous. Drawn by Joe Kubert. Yeah. Kubert did two, two of my stories. The, the talent that surrounded me all the years. Joe Orlando was my first important mentor, teacher, the boss who gave, really gave me my career in the field, getting to have him draw one of my stories along the way. It's ridiculous. Yeah, beautifully ridiculous. And I think that that's, that's very well said, mate. And, and, and before we go, Paul, what, what are you working on at the moment? So unfortunately, the project I'm working on now, which would give you a great smile. I you can't tell me about on the radio, on, on, on the podcast. Yeah, has not yet been announced. Yeah. So I, I can't, I can't talk about that one. I spend about half my time teaching. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a great thrill as a kid who dropped out of college to be teaching in colleges and grad schools. It's kind of a cosmic revenge. See, mom, it worked out okay. <laughs> I'm so upset. There's some, I've done a lot of work in the last couple of years with Boom Studios. Yeah. I've been on board there. Uh, they, they're a great team at Boom. Philip Sablick's a great bloke, isn't he? He knows what he's. A of, he's a very good, bright guy. A lot of good folks there. Yeah. They've been having a fabulous couple of years. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of success with the Berserker Project and yeah. Something's Killing the Children. Oh, yeah. such a wonderful book, that Something's Killing the Children. That, they've just done that a Ram V book, The Many Deaths of Leila Star. That's a good one, too. Yeah, that they were just talking about that in a meeting yesterday. Is their their best reviewed yeah. book of of the year? Oh yeah, he, he's a real talent. I think that guy. I, I know who, I know Ram pretty well. He comes uh, on Forbidden Planet TV quite a bit. But you know, just a, a is he British? Or? Yeah, he's but he, uh, he he's 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 Anglo Indian. Ah, okay. Yeah, Anglo. He grew he grew up in India, but yeah, he lives here. He's he's, he's a super talented guy. They've got, I think they've, I think they've got echoes of what you did at DC actually with Boom, and this is no doubt why you work with them. They 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 put everything you should put first first. I think so. For them, it's about. It seems to me as a guy who 
you know, edits books and sells comics and works on this kind of stuff from and and works on a comics company myself. It seems to me that they really have the formula in terms of they're about the quality of the work first and everything filters through that approach. Their hearts are in the right place. Absolutely. You know, they're it's a young company. There are challenges from that. They don't have the support structure. And in many ways, they're about the size DC was in the years that I started there. Yeah. But DC was part of this larger company. So you didn't have to worry about your check getting paid on Friday. And boom, had to had to worry about that in its years yeah. ago. There yeah, wasn't, wasn't any magic checkbook there. So they've had a higher Olympic degree of difficulty. And yeah. they didn't have Superman and Batman there to build on. But I do think there's a lot of shared values with the values that we had in the good years of DC. And I think they're... They're growing phenomenally, and I think they're on a great track to continue growing. For them. I, I see that too, and I, th- and I think you're actually you're absolutely right. And, and I too have inhabited that strange confluence of being an editorial person who's actually paid to be a business person. And something you've touched upon, which I don't see get talked about very often, but it's a really key thing. If you leap from working for a big multinational corporation, so in my case, like with yourself, you know, I work for Time Warner, but I work for Time Warner UK. Right. And then for a period of time, I was I was running Caillou du Cinema, the French cinema magazine in, in, in Paris. Did that for a year, but that was owned at that time. It had been owned by Le Monde, but it went to a much smaller company. And suddenly, for the first time in my career, I found myself managing cash flow, something you never think about if you work for a big corporation yeah. ever. Yeah. yeah, and and it's and it, but it, but it's 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 of supreme importance when you need to pay your staff and all that kind of stuff. And and it's interesting that the hurdles in a smaller business like Boom, the, the things you have to become involved with that within the corporate structure, you just take for granted. Well, and and it's powers you can use, right? I mean, one yeah. of the reasons we were able to do things like these spirit archives, cash flow was not a problem for DC. Yeah. Yeah. So we can do a print run for this book that will last us five years and it's okay. And it's all, all that sort of frozen cash sitting in a warehouse somewhere. You can't do that if you're a small. It's true. It's so true. So it's that's been one of the interesting things working with Boom has been sort of learning to use some different muscles or getting a perspective on how those different muscles work. I, I think it's a wonderful outcome that one of these many wonderful outcomes for you that you you know you you're putting your many years of expertise in the business to good use working with a with a company that indexes with with your own with your own standards and what you want to achieve and they're certainly a great outfit and sure you've got decades to come of more interesting turn you know turns for your career pool i don't know about i don't know about decades (laughs) if you keep your health mate and it's been it's been wonderful having you on here and i'm really filled with the sense well, I've only scratched the surface of the uh, the questions that I could have asked you. So if you'd be doing me a great favor if you came back on at some point in the future, mate. My pleasure, Andrew. Look, you know, we're we're both of an age and stage where we have a lot that we can look back on. Yeah. The the difference in my career and yours, I guess, is that I stayed largely on a single track, which for our generation was very unusual, at least in America. I mean, it may not have been as unusual in Britain, 
uh, but very few people get to work for the same company. I, one way or another, I was on the DC payroll from nine, the end of 1972 to the end of 2020. So that's 20, 28, 48 years. Yeah. Wow. Nobody does that. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> it's true, mate. <laughs> Our kids don't stay anywhere for 48 months. Usually. Yeah, right on. Absolutely. So, you know, I have, you've got as many stories to tell as I do. There's just no singular podcast that's interested in all the different things you've done. That is very true, mate. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it's absolutely I'll, the I'll case. I'll be happy to come back and pull some other comics off the rack for you one of these other days. That will be a tremendous pleasure. And you have been listening to Hard Degree. I'm Andrew Sumner, and my very special guest today has been the great Paul Levitt, talking about his unique career, his many, almost 50 years at DC Comics. And it's been a real pleasure to see you, Paul. Always is. Always a pleasure, Andrew. Take care of yourself. Stay well in these crazy times. Same to you, brother. Take care. All the best. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hard Agree. This episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenrick Regan, and our theme music, Golden, was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band, Denio. Hard Agree is a production of the Spoilerverse and myself, Andrew Sumner.